We've raised our boys always digging in the dirt with compost. There is, I think, a really powerful thing that if we create in our children, my older son is studying climate change. He wants to be an environmentalist when he gets out of school. The demand we create by really educating our kids around the climate and around how you do these things is going to push all of us as well. As much as there might be pent up demand now in the next generation, there is absolutely going to be demand for the kind of things that you're talking about. And I think we who are running cities and the country need to keep up for that with that. Over my career, I've worked very closely on community gardens. You see there's huge demand to take vacant lots around the city and turn them into community gardens, be able to grow things. Huge opportunity with our kids to teach them how to eat more healthily. We, we shouldn't forget that there are still huge disparities, racial disparities in health that come out of food deserts and lack of access to fresh food. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. Sean Donovan is running for mayor of New York City. Technically, this is not a national or global position, but in practice it is. Many call it the second hardest job in America. Most New York City mayors end up affecting the nation and the world. With a city this size, there are many issues. I focus in my conversation with him today on two. Leadership, meaning personal leadership, which means character, social and emotional skills. And then the other one is sustainability. Regarding leadership, character, and what motivated him, I heard Sean share in this conversation vulnerability. I'm impressed considering his experience in the White House and beyond. Many politicians, they tend to share prepared messages more than themselves. I'll share his bio in a second and then our conversation. With regard to sustainability, I asked him about litter, biking, farmers markets, things I believe that are critical, not as often talked about as, say, the economy, but like Jane Jacobs looked at New York City, it's not just about roads back and forth, but the communities and the neighborhoods that make places worth connecting. These are the things that make a city worth living in. Here's some of Sean's bio. From January 2009 to July 2014, Sean was the 15th Secretary of the United States Department of Housing and Urban Development, where he led the fight against the nation's unprecedented foreclosure crisis. Under his leadership, HUD helped families rent or buy affordable homes, revitalized distressed communities, fought discrimination, and dramatically reduced homelessness. After Hurricane Sandy hit his hometown, President Obama asked Sean to lead the Hurricane Sandy Rebuilding Task Force, leaving a stronger, more resilient region than before the storm hit. In July 2014, he was sworn in as the 40th director of the U.S. Office of Management and Budget. At OMB, he increased investment in key domestic and national security priorities that grew the economy, protected our country, and increased opportunity. And he oversaw regulations that reduced inequality, expanded healthcare, improved education, and fought climate change. Before joining the Obama administration, Donovan served as the commissioner of the New York City Department of Housing Preservation and Development under Mayor Bloomberg, where he led the most aggressive affordable housing program in the nation. He also served in the Clinton administration as deputy assistant to the secretary for multifamily housing at HUD and acting FHA commissioner. I don't have to tell you, this is pretty impressive stuff. He brings a lot to bear to this situation. Not to diminish anything between, but I'm going to jump to the end to talk about his education. He's got a BA and master's degrees in public administration and architecture from Harvard. He was born and grew up in New York City, and he's got a couple sons, and he lives out in Brooklyn. Here's Sean. Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Sean Donovan, mayoral candidate for New York City. Sean, how are you doing? 
I'm great. Thank you. It's wonderful to join you. Thank you for coming and joining and thank you for serving. And I want to start off by saying, especially with the, we just had a presidential race and I feel like a lot of people are feeling jaded about politics. And I look at your background and there's a clear sign of public service that's very clear and very welcome for me. And I wonder what's been motivating you because you could have been doing lots of other things that would probably be less work and maybe make you more money or something like that. And it could be lots of different things. A lot of, I mean, I see housing showing up a lot and I will have read your bio so that people have heard a bit of of that. But what motivates you? Where where does it come from? Well, first, Joshua, I I appreciate you saying that. I often like to say I'm I'm a public servant, not a politician. And it really goes back to my roots growing up in, in New York City. And on the one hand, you know, my dad's an immigrant. He grew up in Costa Rica and Lima, Peru, came to New York and found opportunity, uh, was able to build a life for me and my family that I'm deeply, deeply grateful for. But I saw a lot of people in this city growing up who didn't have that same opportunity. I saw homelessness exploding on our streets. I saw communities like the South Bronx literally burning to the ground. And I guess what I would say is I've always felt a kind of almost indignation or or anger that there's just so much injustice in, in, in our city and in our world. And I've always felt that I wanted to try to make a difference there. And, and the truth is that's, I can't really do anything else. I, I, you know, I often feel like Frank Lloyd Wright used to say about being an architect, if you can do anything else, you should. <laughs> and I can't. It is, I don't necessarily like my job every day in public service, but I love it every day because I can wake up in the morning and put my sense of injustice to work, trying to make the world a better place. If I hear you right, you see yourself in, in the people that you're serving, that, that you're helping all of us. Absolutely. And I started volunteering in a homeless shelter in college. And that was a profound experience to know people not as statistics or as the other or as, you know, somebody to be pitied, but as a neighbor, as a a friend to really build personal relationships and understand that we're all not that different. You know, my grandfather had to go around the world to find work. Uh, that's why my dad grew up in Costa Rica and Lima, Peru. And all of us, in some senses, are a few steps away from not having opportunity. And that's a reminder that we should all be working together to make sure everyone can find opportunity in this city. I want to ask what the experience was like, because I know you spent so much time in D.C., what it was like seeing after your time there, what was going on in D.C. And the, it must have been really difficult to watch. I mean, it's difficult for a lot of people to watch what happened, but I'm going to stick with the city. And there are many issues that we could talk about. Now, this sustainable life is focusing on, I mean, with the pandemic, with racial strife and all these different things, I don't envy that part of your job. But I'd love to talk to you about some of the sustainability things because it seems pretty prominent in your, in your platform. There's many different ways to start. I, I'm going to start with one with transportation because that shows up as a big issue for you, as I understand. And it's early March. In February, I was riding around the city on my bike a lot. And it was a really cold February. And I've been riding my bike since I came here in the 80s. 
And I think the support from the city is, is probably as high as it's ever been in, in my time here, but I don't think we're anywhere near our potential. What's your vision for biking in the city? Well, I'm so glad you started with this, Joshua. I, climate change, I think, is the existential issue of our time. It's why just three days after launching my campaign, I released the most comprehensive climate plan for the future of the city. But I'm also a lifelong biker. If, if this wasn't a podcast, I'd show you the scars I have, the broken bones. I learned to ride a bike in the streets of this city. I still ride all the time. And uh, just to let you know how, how important biking is to me, I was crazy enough as a student to decide I was going to get together a group of friends and retrace the route of the Freedom Rides on the 30th anniversary. So 30 years ago this year, we retraced the route of the Freedom Rides because I was so deeply passionate about the history of the civil rights movement. So I don't think anybody else has ever tried to do it on a bicycle. <laughs> and uh, so it tells you how deeply rooted uh, cycling is for me. And you're absolutely right. We've seen an explosion in folks who want to ride. And certainly city bikes is a expanding piece of the infrastructure. It's still not available in an equitable way. And I think one of the central things we need to do on cycling is really ensure every community has, has access. I think that's important. But I also know from having raised my kids on bicycles in Brooklyn that I know the fear of being in a painted cycling lane. And one of the things that's unique about me in this race, I've actually worked with mayors across the country, across the globe. I've seen that cycling can actually be a much more central part of a city's transportation system with separated cycling. One big part of my proposal is to create many more protected lanes. But a big part of the problem, too, is that we haven't really thought about our cycling infrastructure as a system of connecting up the all the different uh, protected bike routes in the city to really create a fast and safe way for people to commute uh, more effectively. Parking is another big part that's missing right now. The ability, especially in transit deserts, if we could add city bikes, but also for people who have their own bikes, add parking at transit hubs as a starting point. And you have to have it at both ends. So ensuring that bike parking is part of new development that we do in the city is also going to be really important as well. Oh man, that would be so helpful. I just take for granted that I don't lock my bike outside. And that means I only ride to places where I know I can bring it inside. But if, if there was a, I mean, the extreme would be lockers. I don't know if, how many lockers you can fit in a place, but I would love to live in a place where people can lock their bikes and it's, and know that it's going to be there when you come back out. Well, yeah, as you know, if you go to a country that's serious about cycling, you see bike parking. Usually it's a cage where you know that your bike is going to be safe. And it fundamentally changes the potential of, of commuting by bike. Please make this happen. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever support I can give, let me know, you know when, you're in, when you're in office. I'll take you up on that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Another thing I want to get to is litter and garbage because I, I pick up garbage every day. And since the pandemic, it's really increased. And you talk about climate, but I think climate is also a subset of the environment and all the plastic and things. Absolutely. Now, I'm, as I'm saying this, I was just going to put it as an aside, but the look on your face is that this is something to talk about 
because, and if you have a vision there that you can share, I'd love to hear it because I can, I'm going to share my, that years ago, they made cigarette smoking inside buildings illegal. And everyone said, oh, they're going to go across, we're going to, the bars and clubs here are going to lose business because they're going to go to New Jersey where they can smoke. Two years later, New Jersey had to ban it because people were coming here and it was very good for business. And I believe that people have a similar misunderstanding that they think that if we don't have all this disposable stuff, that it's going to be bad for business. And I think it's going to be great for business. Biking too. I think a friend of mine was a commissioner of transportation under Dinkins and he was like trying to get biking, more biking. And everyone's like, that's not good for business. We need cars. And now, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but people see biking as tremendously beneficial for business, for street level business. Well, it's a similar way when we started to work on standards like LEED that make buildings more sustainable. There was an initial reaction, oh, you're regulating us, you're going to make it more expensive. What's interesting is when people now hear, oh, this is a LEED gold or LEED platinum building, they're more likely to want to move in. And it's the same thing that you're talking about, that there is a, there's a pent-up demand for sustainability in our city and in our society that we so often don't connect to. And, you know, just on a personal level, I met my wife in architecture school. I studied housing, but also architecture. She's a landscape architect. So we've raised our boys always, you know, digging in the dirt with compost. And there is, I think, a really powerful thing that if we create in our children, we get pushed. My, my older son is studying climate change. He wants to be an environmentalist when he gets out of school. The demand we create by really educating our kids around, around the climate and ar- around how you do these things is going to push all of us as well. And so I think as much as there might be pent up demand now in the next generation, there is absolutely going to be demand for the kind of things that you're talking about. And I think we who are running cities and and the country need to keep up with that, right? And so there's a huge opportunity here. And I think part of this, it is disposable containers and, and, you know, so many things that with the packaging is a huge problem, but also organic waste is an enormous part of the problem in New York as well. And so I think in addition to the containers, getting to a real system of organic waste and composting uh, would be uh, an enormous step forward as well. And that's a big part of my climate plan too. I'm music to my ears. I was about to say stupid. I'll, I'll be polite, but my co-op board, I went to them and I mean, it stopped from the, from the pandemic, but I was like, let's do, we can get the, the city will come. We're a big enough building that the city will pick up our compost. And they're like, oh, bring vermin. It's the opposite. And I can't wait until there's a mayor who's, till you're out there saying, this is good for everyone. This is going to, you know, it's, it's going to have less vermin. And you know, one of the biggest things for me is that when I compost, you know, I, I drop it off at the farmer's market yep. and it helps me eat more healthy. It helps me shop more local, which is keeping the money in the local economy and, and having farms nearby. And it's fun. Am I right that it's fun to compost? I don't know why it is. Something about like when I see someone put a banana peel in a trash can, I'm like, whoa, why are you doing that? <laughs> it's getting your hands dirty, right? Digging in the dirt. It's the, it's the thing that my boys loved and um, has changed the, their habits. Look, I would also say we're a big farmer's market family too. We need to be doing a lot more on that. But we, should, we shouldn't forget 
in addition to farmers markets, they're just farmers too. And, and creating opportunities for people to grow things, I think is a real piece of the solution as well. Not just because it eliminates packaging altogether. Mm -hmm. If you can, you know, pick something out of the ground and, and take it to your kitchen, but it's something over my career, I've worked very closely on community gardens. You mm -hmm. see there's huge demand to take vacant lots around the city and turn them into community gardens, be able to grow things. Huge opportunity with our kids to teach them how to eat more healthily. We, we shouldn't forget that there are still huge disparities, racial disparities in health that come out of food deserts and lack of access to fresh food. But the other thing I would say is we have to be more imaginative about the way we can create food. One of my proudest achievements when I was housing commissioner, I did a worldwide design competition called New Housing New York. And the winner of that is a place called Via Verde. It's on Brook Avenue in the South Bronx. It's actually where I announced my campaign for mayor. Yes, I saw the pictures. Yeah. And we really sat down with the residents of that community and said, in your dreams, what does affordable housing look like? And it was healthy, affordable housing. So it has a clinic on the ground floor. It has staircases that are beautiful to walk in so that people use them instead of the elevator. It's got a gym in one of the most beautiful places with a, a view of all of the South Bronx and, and Manhattan skyline in the background. But most importantly, it's got vegetable gardens and fruit trees growing on the roofs. And every day after school, a kid can come pick vegetables and eat them for dinner or pull an apple off a, a, a tree. And it's that kind of connection. It's that kind of using our rooftops, using our courtyards in inventive ways that could also really contribute to the solution as well. So I'm for farmers markets, but I'm also for farmers. When you talked about, I'll take up on the help for the biking, I thought the reason I paused was that this area of food is where I, you know, if, if you get me, I want to work. I mean, I've also gone to my co-op board about putting rooftop garden. And actually people who listen to my podcast a lot will know that I, I don't know if you know Spartan Race, but the guy who founded Spartan Race He's been on the podcast a couple of times and I've talked to him about how they can't do their races over the pandemic. And I was like, you know what? You guys like to do stuff. Let's put gardens on, let's do rooftop gardens and do urban and pick up garbage. And, and he was like, that sounds very interesting. So I got, I got a bunch of labor of people who want to carry stuff up to tops of buildings and do stuff. So that's great. As you might guess, Joshua, I was deeply inspired by Michelle Obama and the White House Garden. And mm -hmm. one of my, closest childhood friends is is Dan Barber, the chef who writes oh, yeah. a, a lot about these issues. And he partnered very closely with us at the White House in the Obama administration in thinking about food, food systems, and the progress that we can make. And I, I think we have a huge opportunity in New York at this moment to really change the game on how we grow our food. I'll never forget Ruben Diaz Jr., who's the Bronx Borough president, when we cut the ribbon on Via Verde, he said, let it be known that where the Bronx was once burning, we are now building gardens in the sky. And that's the kind of aspirational leadership I think we need in New York. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. 
Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act, and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Here's one of the things I can offer is that I have my famous no packaging vegan stews. <laughs> I, the last time I threw out my garbage was Christmas 2019. So I'm very low packaging. And the last talk that I gave, public presentation I gave before the pandemic was to Bronx Community Center to show them how they can cook from scratch. Very quick, cheap meals that save money, even though a lot of people associate farmer's markets with expensive. And that has not been the case for me because I was buying season. I'm always getting the stuff that's like really plentiful. And I would love to drive up demand for farmer's markets in areas where there isn't, you know, where people, I mean, my sister works for Grow NYC. And so I've been up to visit her when she's working the, at the Bronx farmer's markets. And there's a lot of McDonald's and Starbucks and stuff extracting value. And I think if there can be programs to drive up demand, to, so kids are growing up cooking chard and things like that, then I don't think we need to push as, well, I don't, I don't know all the solution, but I think driving up demand for fresh vegetables and fruit, I think would play a large role. I'd love to be a part of that. Yeah. Well, one of the things we did when I worked for Mayor Bloomberg that really made a difference is, is just transparency, right? I mean, that was the moment when we required all of the restaurants in New York, particularly these big chains, to publish how many calories and, and what were the ingredients. And it really changed the way many people were eating. The issue is if you have a community where that's the only option, then all the transparency in the world isn't going to solve it, right? You have to both make sure people know that when they get that Big Mac, how bad it is for you, but also have other options. And one of my favorite proposals that I've run on is creating what I call 15-minute neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. What's a 15-minute neighborhood? If, if you live in a wealthy neighborhood in New York, you know, because within 15 minutes of your front door, you've got a great school for your kid, you've got a, a job that sustains your family or transportation that gets you there quickly. You've got healthcare available to get your COVID test or a vaccine, but you've also got fresh food and healthy food available within 15 minutes of your front door. And I think we need to reorient the way we plan our city to make sure that every community is a 15 minute neighborhood. And that includes having a farmer's market, having uh, fresh food, good grocery stores that, that get you that all of those things, places to grow your own food. Those are all things that should be available to every New Yorker within 15 minutes of their front door. Man, I'm glad to hear. And I'll work on the bikes if you want me to, but if I can help with the food and the decreasing the packaging. Yep. That's what I'd really love to work on. Do you know an organization called Rethink Food? Rethink Food. It doesn't ring a bell. I'm on the board of it. I got to know them. They're a fantastic organization. And their premise is focusing on food waste and Mm -hmm. particularly around restaurants where there's an enormous amount of wasted food. And they began by collecting up the excess food from restaurants and making free meals from it. And, and distributing them. And 
in the pandemic, they dramatically expanded to work with restaurants to try to save food, reduce food waste, but also to feed people. I created a program called Common Table with them that got restaurants cooking hot, fresh emergency meals, put restaurant workers back to work, delivered those meals directly to people's front doors so they wouldn't have to go wait four hours in line at a soup kitchen. And I was so taken by the mission of Rethink that I joined the board and and I'm now working with them. But this is another huge area of opportunity where if we can use the food we have much more efficiently and not waste the food itself, we could dramatically lower the cost of feeding folks when we've seen record food insecurity during the pandemic. So that's another direction that I'm really interested in and have been working on. And you should, uh, happy to introduce you to Matt Joswiak, who founded it. I would love to. And I'm not sure if you know, I suspect that you know of my two of my biggest inspirations are Tony Hillary at uh, Harlem Grown and the Green Bronx Machine. Yep. That they're just huge inspirations of showing what should never have worked by some conventional wisdom. But once you see why it works, you see why it has to grow and how we could, what transformation it could bring. And when people argue that we should have more, that, that like large soda containers are somehow beneficial. What I'm hearing coming naturally to you doesn't come naturally to so many people, but some people have made that happen really well. Yeah. Whether that's to, I guess both of them are really connected with schools, but they're also very closely connected with neighborhoods that are, don't have farmer's markets, yeah. don't have fresh foods. I, I think part of it for me, honestly, Joshua, is, is I said earlier, I was trained as an architect as well as in, in housing. And I think there is something about bringing design thinking to solving mm-hmm. public problems that allows you, does, what, what do designers do? They imagine things that people have never seen before. And so I like to say, you know, most people think of public service as the art of the possible. I like to think of it as the art of the nearly impossible. And that's true when you go to Via Verde. Lots of people who worked with me in the housing department in New York said, you're going to have a worldwide design competition. You think you're going to build affordable housing that nobody's ever seen before. And that's what we ended up doing. Similarly, after Sandy hit and President Obama asked me to lead the entire federal recovery effort, I created a worldwide design competition called Rebuild by Design. And we brought the best architects and landscape architects and planners from all over the world to New York. And we partnered them with community organizations to imagine completely new solutions to climate change. And they're now being built all over the region. And those are the kinds of really powerful things I think you can do if you bring people together with incredibly diverse perspectives and backgrounds and allow them to really think big about the potential to solve challenges in a new way. I'm hearing almost a fun in this that, I mean, obviously we don't want to have problems, these problems to solve, but that it's not like saying, I don't hear you getting down. And at the very beginning, you talked about your family connecting you with motivating you on, on social areas. On the area of the environment, I'm hearing intrinsic motivation. I'm hearing something coming. What motivates, I mean, it's different for everyone, but what motivates you on the environment? What, what do you think about that gets you going? Well, partly it's my boys. Uh, <laughs> they keep me honest about just about everything. And as I said earlier, part of it is just loving the natural world. I mean, one of, one of our favorite things, my wife's a landscape architect, as I said, 
I've now, you know, I ski, I get out in the ocean with my boys. I hike with them every year. My best friend from college has six kids and every year we go on a big hiking trip somewhere. Uh, so despite being a, a New York city kid, I've always really connected with the, the natural world in a way that is profound for me. If you don't want profound, I mean, this is like, I heard a genuine expression of emotion there, which I'm not so used to hearing from politicians. <laughs> what emotions do you get when you're skiing or, or hiking with the family? Maybe in a certain way, I would compare it to one of the things I love about New York and one of the things I love about public service. I think there is something very profound about the experience of losing yourself, losing your individuality to a much bigger cause or purpose. And, you know, I, I often think too often or too much, we, we live in an era of the individual. There's so much focus on self-improvement and self-care. And I think for me, there is something very profound in some might even call it the anonymity of being a New Yorker, of losing yourself in this much larger place. And that's what happens in the natural world too. You, you realize that you are just one small piece of a much larger thing, a much larger collective. And I think that's a powerful experience. And that's what, that's what service is, right? It's putting your individual self in service of a much bigger cause. So it's losing yourself and into nature, into one's community, I see the profound in that. And I mean, it's also part of what motivates me. And something I do with my guests is I invite you, this is at your option. If you don't want to do it, that's fine. But to think of something to do to act on, uh, not to try to save the world, because a lot of people hear that, but to act on that feeling. And if you're game for it, to share how it went, if you get the chance. I know it's a very busy season. But a lot of guests, actually, virtually all of them accept this and, and they, they think of something they can do, usually short term, that is acting on that sense of, of oneness, that sense of, of in your case, the losing yourself, something new that you're not already doing. And if you, if you don't, we can edit it out too. But if you're game for it, people really like the experience. That's great. And do you usually suggest th- those or uh, do guests come up with themselves? Yeah, guests come up with it. It usually goes back and forth a couple of times because people are, the first thought is what is the New York Times Sam supposed to do or what is Greenpeace Sam supposed to do? And often that's a challenge. It's usually something that people have been thinking about doing for a while, but they hadn't had the chance to. And they're like, oh, you know, this will be my excuse to do X. Yeah. The immediate thing comes to mind is, you know, I, I have not run for public office before. I, as I said earlier, I like to think of myself as public servant, not a politician. Mm-hmm. And This week, we're out on the streets getting signatures for petitions to get on the ballot. But as part of that, making sure we're helping register people to vote who aren't already registered. And uh, that's a profound experience of losing yourself in democracy, right? So that's been an exciting one for me just this week to be part of that process for the first time as a candidate. And so, but I, I will definitely think about other other ones that uh, I'd love to come back to you on. Okay. There's one constraint that I didn't mention, which is to do something with your own hands. A lot of people say, I work with those leaders and they constantly say, oh, I'll get other people to do something, which I'm, I'm all for, but it's also to do something oneself that has the effect. Yep. 
you know, there is, I'll never forget the first time working in a soup kitchen, right? And, and serving food, that, that connection over food that you have with somebody who's homeless or those experiences are profound. And after Katrina, I remember bringing my sons to New Orleans and actually working on a, on a house together that we were rebuilding. There is something very, very powerful of rolling up your sleeves and getting to work with your hand. Yeah. And I know that we're, we have like probably two minutes left. So I want to thank you very much. If something comes up where you feel like that's what, you know, I just did something that really gave you that feeling that you just described there. Yeah. I'm in touch with your people and I'd love to bring you back. And, and if you could share how that went, I would love to hear it. Be great. I'd love that. So to wrap up, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up or any message direct to the listeners? I mean, I'll put the links to your webpage, but also where should they go next? Well, maybe um, just to finish something I was talking about a moment ago, Rebuild by Design, which I created when I was HUD secretary leading the Sandy Recovery Task Force, just to be more concrete about the kind of solutions that I'm talking about is the living breakwaters. It's now being built off the coast of Staten Island. It was created by a MacArthur Genius Award-winning landscape architect, the first ever to win that award. And what it does, it's artificial breakwaters, which are oyster reefs that use the tides to actually build up sand on the coastline. So it is using natural processes to protect the coast of Staten Island from the next Sandy. It's also growing oysters, which, as you know, clean the water. So it is a process that's actually contributing to making New York Harbor safer, restoring our oyster ecosystem. It can create a whole new economic future for people growing up in in Staten Island or around the city because it can restart an oyster industry in New York to feed us. New York Harbor was one of the great oyster harbors in the world. And it partners with the Harbor School to educate kids about our environment, about our harbor, whether they want to go into conservation or be an oyster Fisher person one day, I visited the Harborview School in Staten Island that is using oysters and this process to teach an entire semester, the science, the math, the history around the regrowing of oysters in, in our harbor. So think about it. That is a solution that both is flood protection, but very different from just building a flood wall. It has the potential to do so many other things to benefit the folks in Staten Island, but also across the city. And to me, those are the kinds of solutions we need to be thinking about in public service that really would allow us to take this moment of crisis and, as President Obama used to say, not let the crisis go to waste. Well, I have to say, I can't put into words how refreshing it is to hear someone suggesting stuff and I heard you talk about oysters, but combined with talking about gardens and farms, it tells me that the, this is one example of many. And please let me know how I can help you when you start implementing these things. I look forward to it. Thank you for sharing what I heard from the heart. 
And uh, I look forward to crossing paths in person when we get the chance. I look forward to it too, Joshua. And uh, thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Sean Donovan, thank you very much. Take care. Do your elected officials compost? Do they pick up litter? As previous guests, the mayors of Florida's Orlando and Orange County did? Sean acknowledges that these civic activities aren't just nice-to-haves or things that you do. They're a part of democracy. Note besides the civic part how much he connects these activities with family. In fact, it seems to me the prime connection between him and his sustainability is through his family, his children especially. I talk to a lot of people about these things, and it's often one of the prime excuses that people have. Oh, I can't because of all this family stuff. What are you doing with your family if not enjoying nature and food and things like that together? Composting, gardening. I hope that Sean leads many citizens and other elected officials to embrace sustainability with the enthusiasm that he does. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.